Welcome back to Axiom Youth Podcast. This lesson is being taught by Brother Jared Turner, and it's entitled Three Characteristics of Usefulness. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Well, thank you, praise team. Thank you, Sister Nikki, Sister Hannah, Sammy Joe. Thank you for leading us in worship. We're going to look now at the story of David in the book of 2 Samuel. How many have been doing your word before world? Remembered a little better this time? Good. Okay, we've got a few more hands. 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. We're going to look. I'm going to just read one story. I'm going to kind of talk about David's life in general, but we are going to look at one story uh, in 2 Samuel chapter number 4. If you've been reading, you it might sound familiar. And it says in the verse number 5 says, And the sons of Rimon, the Bethrite, and Rechab, the and Banna went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who how would you like those names? Aren't you thankful your parents pick better names? Ishbosheth. Would you like to be Ishbosheth? You know that's a that's a name for if we have a boy one day I could name Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon, and they came thither into the midst of the house, as though they would have fetched wheat, and smote him under the fifth rib. Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and got them away through the plain all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life, and the Lord hath avenged my lord the king this day and his seed. So that's a pretty violent that's a pretty violent story. But we're going to look at David's response because I'm going to give you three things tonight about David's life, three things that God could use in David's life, three characteristics that allowed God to use David, three characteristics of usefulness. That's what we'll title it. Three characteristics of usefulness. I did just come up with that. Three characteristics of usefulness. So let's bow our head and we're going to pray one more time. God, I'm thankful for your word. We're thankful for the stories that are contained in your word. I'm thankful for these young people that are here, that are lifting up your name, that are living for you in this world. And I pray that you would help us tonight, that you would help us to learn something from your word that we can apply into our life to better live and serve you. And God, we give you praise and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated tonight. David, the Bible says, it's been often quoted that David was a man after God's own heart. That the prophet Samuel said to Saul that God is going to look for somebody after his heart to be his king over his people. If you read the, the word before world last time and this time, you're beginning to hopefully get a lot of stories under your belt about the life of David. And he was a pretty remarkable character in terms of his theological significance. Well, he wrote uh, the book of Psalms, which has a lot of theology in it. 
uh, they teach us at IBC that if you lost all of the Old Testament, like if it was lost to us and there was no copies to be found, and all you had was the book of Psalms, then you could copy the doctrine or the beliefs of the Old Testament to an accuracy of about 90, I think it was 95%, just based on the book of Psalms. And of course, David was didn't write the whole book, but he was a predominant writer of the book of Psalms. So he was a great songwriter and understood a lot about God. And of course, he was also the king from which was prophesied the Messiah would come from his family, his lineage, that Jesus was going to be born from the family of David. So David was a pretty central figure to the nation of Israel and to the faith that we adhere to, to the Christian faith. He was very useful to God. And it was this story about Ishbosheth that got me thinking about the characteristics that God saw in David that he could use. Because God looked, and nobody else recognized David as a leader. Nobody else recognized him as any kind of famous person. He was the youngest son, which in that day and age, the eld- your birth order mattered a lot. In this day and age, it's just kind of your older siblings get to maybe poke fun at you a little bit, but it doesn't really matter in terms of legal significance. But in that day and age, it meant everything. The eldest inherited everything, and the younger just were out of luck. And so that if you were the youngest of all, you were really out of luck. And that's where David found himself. And see, But you hopefully read the story of how God chose him because he said, I look on the heart. Well, what was it that God saw on David's heart? We're going to list those three things and then we're going to apply them to your life because it would do you well to copy those things if you want to be useful to God, if you want God to be able to use your life. The first thing, the first characteristic in David's life that allowed him to be useful to God was that he valued the cause over his ambition. He valued the cause over his ambition. And here's the example I want to show you. When he came to the battlefield and he saw Goliath, on the field of battle, taunting the armies of God, taunting the armies of Israel, he said, is there not a cause? Now, he, the, the rest of the men knew that there was a reward. He, they knew that if they had killed Goliath, that they would become a high commander in the king's army. They would get all this riches and they would get to marry the king's daughter, which was more than just getting a wife, which is a good thing. It was getting the king's daughter. Therefore, you're the king's son-in-law. You are in the family of the king. You go from a nobody to a somebody in a matter of minutes. So if ambition was enough to be useful to God, then there would have been people that stood up and said, yeah, I'm going to do that. But see, it was such a challenge That ambition wasn't enough. God couldn't just take somebody that wanted to do something great and then do something great with them. They were the guys that had ambitions of being great. They were cowering in their holes. And David didn't do it so that he could get the money or the fame. He, He said, is there not a cause? That was something in David's heart that he connected to the bigger picture, the bigger purpose. It wasn't just self focused on what he could get out of it. 
It's there, there's something bigger that's worth dying for. See, my, a, a few dollars and, and status doesn't do you any good if you're dead. But see, the cause endures even after I die. So I'm going to find something to give my life to. So David valued the cause over ambition. So if you're going to be useful to God, let's think of the things that you could do right now for God. You could start a P7 club at your school. You could raise money for She's for Christ. You could work around the church. You could witness to your friends. You could teach a Bible study to your family. But the only way any of that is going to be useful to God is if you're doing it because you see the cause. Because you see that people need to be saved. Because you see that people are lost if they do not know the Lord. Because you see that if you engage in the kingdom, God will bless and that you can be a part of something bigger than yourself. But if you just want to be cool, or let's, let's use Jesus for Christ because that's an easy one to pick on. If you just want to get the incentives only and be kind of a rock star in the district, then that's not, and some of you know what I'm talking about, some of you don't. And don't it's, I'm not trying to say anything specifically. I'm just saying it's about the cause more than it is your ambition. If you're just ambitious, I want to be cool, I want to be popular at school, I'm going to get this club going, I'm going to be this kind of guy, I'm going to have this kind of image or this kind of person, and I'm going to, it's not going to last very long. Because ambition won't get you when the going gets tough. And you're going to say, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And I, I, my image is more important to me than this, so you're going to walk away. But the cause propels you forward. And that's something that God can look down and say, I can use that young person because they understand the cause. They understand what this is all about. They understand what's at stake. They understand this is not just playing games, that this is something important. You've got to understand that what you are involved in, young people, is important. This can't just be a sideshow for your life. This is not the same thing as any extracurricular activity that you do. Band or choir or whatever. It's not just some side thing. This is everything. If you're going to be used by God, it's got to be everything doesn't mean you're all going to be missionaries or pastors or youth pastors or evangelists or whatever. It just means that God has a purpose for you. And if you see that purpose in your life, God will do great things with you. But you've got to value the cause. Number two. Number two. I think you got it. Number, number one, he valued the cause more than his ambition. And then number two is very, very important. And this kind of brings us to our story. David never put his hands on the will of God. He never tried to control God's will in his life. He never tried to manipulate God or push some sort of spiritual agenda forward on his own power. He let God's will play out in his life however God wanted it to happen. And there's several examples of this one. Now, when David was running from Saul, we read in 1 Samuel, when he's running from the king that wants to kill him. And he's hiding in a cave because he's afraid of this king. And he's in the back, in the dark of the cave, and in walks Saul to take a nap. 
And he lays down and falls asleep. And you know what the men that are with David say? The Lord has delivered him into your hand. It looked like God had done it. It looked like a miracle. Here is my enemy. Right here, he fell asleep in the very cave that I didn't go to him. He came to me. This looks like a miracle. And they said, David, you should kill Saul right now. That, he's trying to kill you. It's only fair. God has delivered him into your hand. But see, David said, I'm not going to touch this man that God has chosen to be king. If God wants me to be king, he will remove him himself. I'm going to let God's will play out in my life. I'm not going to manufacture any kind of thing or any kind of future for my life apart from God's will. I'm just going to let God do the work. It happened again in this story. This man, these two brothers, Benaiah and what the other guy's name was, I forget, whatever his name was, it doesn't really matter, Rimon. These two guys, they came because after Saul was killed in battle, his son Ishbosheth became the king, and so he was, became David's enemy. He was the man that was stopping David from being king over all of Israel. And these men murdered this man and brought his head to David, thinking that they were going to give him, that he was going to give them a reward thinking that he was going to reward them because they had finally made God's will possible in his life. They had finally allowed for David to be king over all of Israel because they had killed the one man that was in his way. And you know what David did? Do you think he gave them a big reward and said, congratulations, thank you for accomplishing the will of God in my life? No, he said, you have killed an innocent man while he slept, and now you are going to die. And he had those two men put to death because they had killed somebody in cold blood. Even though it benefited him, even though it made him king over all of Israel, he did not reward that kind of behavior because his attitude was if God wants me to be king, God will make it happen. And I don't have to put any kind of Thing on God's will for it to be accomplished in my life. God's strong enough to do it all on his own. And you know what happened later on in his life? That there was a revolt from his own son. And his own son tried to kick him out of the kingdom. And you know what David did? He retreated. His son was marching into Jerusalem with an army. And he said, I could start a civil war. But you know what? I'm not going to do that. Because it would destroy my city that I love. And it would destroy people that I love. So I'm going to retreat and I'm going to let God fight my battle. And if God wants me to be king, he will bring me back to Jerusalem. And he left and let his brat son take over the whole capital of his nation that he had built. He see, David had this attitude in his heart and in his life that I am going to take my hands off of my life. And if God has promised something to me, I'm just going to let God do it. I'm not going to get too involved in the will of God for my life. I'm just going to say yes to God and then watch him do it. Because what's the temptation? Is that you can try to make something happen in your life. You can try to take control of your own life. And when you reach for control of your life, 
God just lets you have it. Because it is free will. It is your choice. We can compare David to the life of Saul who was always trying to. He wanted, he was religious. He was God's king. He kind of said the right things, but he wanted control over his kingdom. When he was supposed to wait on Samuel to offer a sacrifice to the Lord before going into battle, Samuel was running a little bit late and so Saul did it himself. And he was rebuked from that. He didn't learn his lesson and when he was told to destroy an entire city, the whole population, animals and everything, he kept alive the king to kind of use as a political pawn and kept alive the sheep and the goats, which we've talked about in this service before, in our services before. And that was the day that he lost the kingdom. God said, look, if you're not going to be my king and allow me to do whatever I want to do with my kingdom, then I'm not going to use you anymore. You're free to do whatever you want, but you're not going to have my blessing anymore. Uh, you're no longer useful to me. I have rejected you, and I'm going to find somebody that is after my heart. Because the person that God will use is not, you hear this a lot, but it's so true, is not the most talented person. It is not the person with the most money or the most connections. The person that God will use and the thing that is useful to God is somebody that will take their hands off of their own life and say, God, I'm going to let your will unfold in my life. But if you cannot take your hands off of your own life, God cannot use you. God cannot use you. You've got to be willing to let the will of God play out in your life. No matter how obvious it may seem. Oh, this is such a great opportunity. I don't know if I can pass that up. You better be very careful. And you better ask yourself, what is the will of God for my life? Am I forcing something that God does not want into my life? Let, let me get practical with you because you are at a, a very shocking, alarming rate approaching decisions that will change your life forever. Decisions about what you're going to do after high school. Decisions even in a few short years about what kind of person you're going to marry. And these kind of things are, if you're going to remain useful to God, you have to have His will involved in them. I would say that you're going to have to have the will of God involved in these things if you want to stay saved. Because these are issues that I have seen drag people out of church. Making the wrong decision at this critical juncture of your life can be very fatal to your walk with God. And so you better allow the will of God to work out in your life. But if you get impatient with God and say, okay, I'm going to just take this road because it's a sure thing, because I see the way forward, because I know that I can control it. You've got to be very careful because you may remove your usefulness to God. Because if you stay submitted to God, it does not matter how impossible it is. When God speaks, it will happen. And you, you think that David, who was a shepherd boy, could have become king over all the nation without God. God elevated him from nothing but a shepherd to the general in the army who was the number one hero of all of Israel. God did that. David could not have done that himself. Then, how foolish would it have been if David, after God had elevated him to that level, would have said, I've got it from here, God. 
The Apostle Paul talks about this to the church at Galatia. He said, foolish Galatians, what hath bewitched you? That what you think that what you have begun in the spirit, you can complete in the flesh. It's not going to work. If God's called you, the only way it's going to happen is if you allow him to do it. So don't get at a critical juncture of your life after God's filled you with the Holy Ghost. After God has worked on you and pulled you out of so many different circumstances. And I've seen God do miracles in your life. But you cannot give up on the plan of God now. You've got to stay submitted and say, God, I know what you spoke to me at an HYC. And it looked impossible when you said it. But I'm just going to keep allowing you to work in my life. But if you get impatient and say, well, this is a sure road or this is something that I can control, that I can understand. This is a future that that I can get a hold of. I shared a little bit of my testimony last time that I spoke about God speaking to me and dealing with my heart and saying, Jared, if these are your plans, it's so sad that they can be contained in a thousand words or less because it was something that I could control. I could control which school I went to. I could control which job I applied for. It's something that was a sure future. It wasn't like walking off into just no man's land and saying, well, what are you going to do with your life, Jared? I don't know. I'm, I'm being led by the Spirit. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to answer the call of God. That doesn't go over well. At family reunions. They kind of look at you fun now. I'm very blessed with a very godly family. So most of my family understood. But there's always those people. Friends and whatever. And if you don't grow up in church. If most of your family's not in church. You will get the sideways glances. You will get the what are you talking about? Well if you could say. Well this is my plan. And I'm going to do this for two years. And I'm going to do this for this. And this and this and this. And that gets a lot more head nods. And a lot more I'm proud of you. And I'm a. But, but you know what? If God's called you, if God started a work in your life, don't give up on Him now. Because it was impossible when you started, and it's still impossible, yes, but David would have never even been where he was if God had not been working on him. So how foolish would it have been for him to be abandoned in the middle? Because you know what? Saul was the same boat as David. He was out chasing his father's donkeys. He was just some sort of servant for his father who Saul even said, is the lowest of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm the lowest of his sons. And God took that man and made him king. And once he became king, once he became big in his own eyes, he said, oh, I'm a big deal. And he stopped following God's leading. It was impossible for him to be king. The only way he got there was a miracle. Don't give up. On what God wants to do in your life. It's a miracle that you're here. It's a miracle that God has got you this far. But do not give up on the plan of God. Take your hands off of your own life. David didn't put his hands on the will of God. Even when it looked like he should. Even when it looked like it was the obvious choice. He said no. It would be obvious. Say, David, you need to take your army out and you need to destroy your brat son and his armies and this rebellion and you need to crush it. And he said, no. If God wants me to be king, he'll bring me back. If God wants, it's a miracle that I'm even the king. I'm not going to do all this stuff to keep a stranglehold on my power. I think you get it. Number three, last point. David could take correction well. 
David could take correction. While there are two instances where David sinned immensely. He was a human just like any of us. And he made a very massive mistake. And if you keep reading in 2 Samuel, you'll see. I'm not going to rehash his mistake. It was big. And he comes in, the prophet comes in, and he confronts David. Most everybody has lived through a moment like that. Where you've committed a sin. And when the Lord uses somebody or sometimes just your own conscience to convict you. When somebody's had to point their finger in your face and said, you were wrong. You were wrong. That's not, that's not unique. That is everybody on the face of the planet has had that kind of moment. Especially if you're trying to live for God. Because the Bible says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. God is our father and primarily the job of a parent is to make sure that that child grows up to be a civilized human being. And that takes a lot of discipline and correction. So God corrects us a lot. So if you've lived for God any length of time, there has been moments when you have been corrected. When somebody has had to say, hey, you were, ha you were wrong. Your attitude, your tone of voice, your motivation was wrong. That's not uncommon. That means God loves you. That means God's reaching for you. And thank God that he does that. Thank God for every person that has looked me in the eye and said, you are wrong. Thank God for every time I came to an altar and began to repent as conviction fell in my life. And God began to show me things that should not be in my life. Thank God for those days. That's a good day. But that's not unique to David's life. What is unique to David's life is how he responded. Because it is common in man to rise up with what? Excuses. To rise up with defensiveness. To rise up and to say, well, this is why I did that. And, and it really wasn't that bad because of all these circumstances in my life. Or I'm really the victim here and you're just victimizing me or you're being unfair. See, that is what rises up in us. Every one of us. It rises up in us. When you're corrected, say, this is why I'm not wrong. This is why I'm right and you're wrong. Or this is why it's really not as bad as you say. This is why you're blowing it out of proportion or you're being unfair. That rises up in us. But you know what? David was able to control that. And his first response was not defensiveness. His first response was not, I'm right and you're wrong. His first response was not, how dare you accuse me, the king, of something so terrible? How dare you say that I would do such a thing? Or how dare you say? He immediately began to repent. Not just, I'm sorry, so you'll get out of my face or whatever. We'll move on with the issue. No, he said, God, search me. Create in me. The Bible says it. It says it before that psalm that created me a clean heart. It says it in the little, the little tab, the little note before it starts. That this is what David wrote when he was repenting for his sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Against you and you only have I sinned, O God. It's just me and you, God, and I made a big mistake. 
I'm not going to offer any excuses. I'm not going to say who in my staff made me do it or who in my court made me do it. I'm not going to say any. I'm not going to give any excuses, God. I'm just going to fall down on your mercy. And then again, he messes up. The Bible talks about it. It doesn't really say exactly what David's sin was. But it says that he numbered the people. And apparently that was something he was not supposed to do. It was something that did not please the Lord. And so God said, I've got to punish the nation. And you get to choose the punishment, David. It's kind of like when you grow up in the country. I didn't, but some people, my grandma did. And you used to pick your own switch. You ever had to do that? I mean, it's Arkansas. It's kind of the country, right? You had to go out and pick your own switch. And are you going to get the big one? You know, or are you going to get the little one that might sting a little? I mean, you're trying to find the one just right. One that will break, you know, maybe a rotten one, you know. But then that, yeah. So I, yeah, I'm talking to some country folks here. So you've had to do that before. So that's kind of what God did to, to David, right? He said, you've got to pick the punishment. And it's just interesting. And I, I, I don't want to make a doctrine out of this necessarily, but it's interesting the one that David chose. It's interesting which he said, we're just going to fall on the mercy of God. I don't want to be beaten before my enemies. I don't want to fall into the hand of the Philistines. I'm just going to let God be in control of the punishment. See, he had that, that attitude in his heart. that said, I, I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to say I don't deserve this. I'm not going to become a victim because I recognize that I did wrong. And if you can respond correctly to correction, God can use you in in His kingdom. But you've got to be able to respond because that's how God works in your life. That's how God draws you close. That's how God initially contacts you is He deals with the stuff in your life that will be a hindrance to your walk with Him. That's why the entrance to the kingdom is repent. And be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins so that God can fill you with the power of the Holy Ghost. You've got to deal with it up front. So you've got to be able to take correction. So if you are one of those people, and listen, I'm I'm kind of one of those people too. I remember getting lectures from my dad and him, uh, me thinking that I, I did this a lot, I told on myself. Because I thought I was in the right. I would kind of be bratty at school and think that the teacher was against me and that the teacher hated me. And then I'd come home and tell mom and dad. And dad would listen for a while. He'd pretend, shake his head. And he'd let me say my piece about how I was done so wrong. And then, guess whose fault it was? My fault. Because I was the kid. I was a child. And I was not understanding what was going on. And I was being a brat. So dad set me straight. Set the record straight and tell you, that's not fun. When you think you're in the right and you feel that justice and you're like, yeah, mom, dad's going to get them. And then dad's like, "Um, you're going to go back tomorrow and you're going to apologize. You're like, ooh, that didn't go well. That didn't go well. Role reversal. Because there's a lesson there to be learned that my dad was trying to teach me. That I've got to be able to look at myself. If I'm ever going to be used by God, if I'm ever going to be useful to Him, I've got to be able to look at myself. And I've got to say, what part did I play in this? And when that correction comes, I've got to be willing to accept the results. 
And I've got to be able to say, God, forgive me. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. See, sin is really not that big a deal with God. What is a big deal with Him is unrepented sin. That's the biggest deal. Sin that's genuinely repented of, God can take care of it like that. God has saved people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of stuff. But it's the stubborn things. And it can be something small that you will not repent of. That you will not let be convicted in your life. I will not stop this. I will not stop watching that. I will not stop doing this. I will continue to be involved in this no matter what anybody thinks, even God. That's when it becomes a problem. Big sins that are repented of at an altar are easily forgiven. But the little ones that you hold on to become a barrier to where God cannot use you. These three characteristics, I believe, made David useful to God. He understood the value of the cause over his ambition. It was about God and his kingdom and what God could do through him, not about what he could get out of the deal. He had a hands-off approach when it came to the will of God for his life. God, you said it, you've got to make it happen. I'm just going to be faithful to you. I'm not going to try to control this thing. And when he was corrected, he responded in genuine repentance. They could come to the music. We're going to conclude tonight. I just want to pray for you. If you'd stand with me. I want you to be able to apply this lesson in your everyday life. I want you to be able to take stock of your life, to look, look over your life, look over your heart. And I want you to be able to ask yourself, where are my motivations? Why am I doing what I'm doing? What do I really care about? What, what really matters to me? What has God spoken to you that looks impossible? What are some things that God's dealing in your heart about? And then what are some things that God's asking you to get rid of? Your response in these areas are going to determine your usefulness to God. Not your talent, not your family, not your abilities, not how much money you have, not how good looking you are. None of, that's, none of that matters to God. What matters... Are you going to really let him be in control of your life? Are you going to really let him take control? So I want you to close your eyes and I'm going to pray for you. God, I pray right now that you would just begin to work in this place, that you would touch these young people's lives, that you would help them, God. They've been such a good audience tonight. I can feel in their heart and their spirit, Lord, that they are receiving this. And I pray that you would help us all to put it into practice. Help us all to search our heart, look at our motivations, look, ask ourselves the question, what, is, what are you trying to accomplish in us and are we trying to control it too much? And God, if there's young people here that you're having to correct or that you're having to struggle to deal with something in their life I pray Lord that they would respond in the right way with genuine repentance and brokenness of heart before you because you can take care of any problem with an open heart 
I pray that you would touch this group and all the things, God, that you've called them to do and the plans and the purposes that you have put in their life. I pray that you would bring it to pass. I pray that it would come to pass in Jesus' name. That you would help us to be useful to you. Come on, young people, just right where you are, I want you to respond. Let the Lord talk to you. I think there's somebody here that God's dealing with you. God's been talking to you. And maybe there's something you've got to give up. Maybe there's some plan that you have that God's saying, look, if you'll just let me have this, I'll do more in your life than you could ever imagine. If you'd like to come forward, this altar's open. I want to challenge somebody to step forward and just as a testimony and say, God, I surrender to you. I surrender my life to you. I surrender my heart to you. Come on, let's turn this place into a prayer room right now. This altar's open. This has been an episode of Axiom Youth Student Ministries. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you've enjoyed and we hope you'll come back for the next one. Thank you for tuning in.